0: Here in Luke chapter 13, Jesus teaches on several uh, large topics, main topics, important topics. I've titled this Questioning Jesus, either through questions brought before him or just his teaching, which produced questions. He teaches his own things like repentance, the Sabbath, the kingdom, and on and on. We're going to try to get through the entire chapter here in Luke 13. Already we've read verses 1 through 9, which brings us to our first heading for this morning, and that is the heading of repentance. After we finished chapter number 12, we found Jesus teaching them to make right with God with urgency. In fact, you remember he used the illustration of someone being drugged to court facing jail, and he said, you do whatever you had to do to make right with the one bringing you to court, to be right by that lawyer, to be right by that judge, because you don't want to go to prison, because even if you went to prison, you'd be there until you'd paid back the last penny of that debt. And you'd never be able to pay it back from prison, meaning this was a finality. And so he said, with urgency, you would make right with that situation. Well, with more urgency, you should be making right with God. And so Jesus picks up here in chapter 13, continuing this theme. And we just read, as he states more than once, the solution is repent or perish. let's pray and then we'll get right into this father we're thankful for time together with the church in your word today we ask for your blessing upon this time holy spirit speak to us illuminate the word to our eyes and our hearts this morning help us to grow in jesus name we ask this amen jesus uses two instances of national calamity to address and make his point here beginning in verses one through three as he talks about some Galileans who were slaughtered at the hand of Pilate in Rome. Let's reread those verses. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said to them, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. I tell you, no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So those questioning Jesus seem to be wanting him on their side or his justification that, well, we're not as bad as the Romans because look what they have done. And Jesus doesn't budge. In fact, he turns it back on them and says, do you think that these guys were a special sort of sinners because this thing was allowed to happen to them? And his reply to that on suggestion is to those who ask this, if you don't repent, you're going to perish just the same. And then in verse 4 and 5, we read about 18 who were killed when a tower fell in a place called Siloam. So he says again, "Are those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, thank you that they were sinners above all the men that dwelt in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So were these 18 being punished for some extreme wickedness? And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. The case is, all must repent or perish. And if you don't repent, you are also going to perish. Well, what is the teaching here? What is the teaching for you and I in the modern church? How is Jesus answering this line of questioning that has come before him? I think it's rather simple. In fact, we could use the book of Romans in our day to give the same answer. What is Jesus saying? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Were these killed by Pilate because it was God's sovereign will that they be killed because of their extreme sinfulness? Did this tower fall on 18 people because of how wicked they were? It's similar to the question, who sinned, his mom or his dad, that this boy would be sick? Jesus' answer is clear. You've all sinned. You've all come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. No, not even one. It's not unrighteous. Repent or perish. Who needs to repent? Everyone. You must be born again. Romans 5.12. Jesus takes this teaching a little deeper here in these verses. And, and we can use Romans 5.12 as a good cross reference to that. Why do all deserve to die? You say we must repent or we must perish. Well, why do all deserve to die? Like the rich young ruler, I've kept the law from my youth. Surely I'll have eternal life. And Jesus keeps adding to the standard, keeps adding to the standard, keeps adding to the standard. What's the point? The point is nothing any of one of us can do in this life besides just simple repentance. Can bring us to where we need to be with God. Why? Because by one man, Romans five twelve, sin entered into the world. So death. Passed upon all men. Now some may say, well, I'm not a sinner. Some may say, well, I'm not that bad of a sinner. Some may say, well, I don't know that I've ever done anything I need to repent of. But I think Jesus is clear here. All have sinned. there is none righteous. And we all will get what we have earned, which is death. The difference in repenting or not. Is simply, will Jesus' death suffice for you, or will you eternally die on your own? So, Jesus teaches about repentance. Instead of trying to make others' sins greater than your own, the teaching is, repent and you will find forgiveness. Jonathan Edwards once asked his congregation to give him one reason why God hadn't destroyed them since they got up that morning. That's not the world we live in anymore, is it? In fact, we often will come to church even ourselves thinking, how in the world would God let that happen to those poor innocent people? That's a flaw in our thinking. There are no innocent people. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None are righteous. Death is passed upon all men for that all have sinned. A better way to think of it is Edward's way of thinking about it. Give me one reason why God hasn't destroyed us all since we got up this morning. Edwards went on in that sermon to ask them to consider that every moment that they live, every luxury they enjoy, every blessing they participate in, is a matter of receiving the grace of God. It represents God's willingness to be patient with a group of people who've actually rebelled against Him. God has called each one of us to perfection. You're not allowed to sin. The penalty for sin is death. And yet we continue to sin and we become astonished and offended when God allows any suffering, even the least little bit of suffering. It sort of floors us. How can this be? I'll tell you how it can be. You are created and called to perfection. Any ounce of disobedience against that is going to bring corruption into your life which will bring this suffering. Now this section ends with a parable about a fig tree. And it's a good conclusion to what Jesus has just said. So He's, he's been questioned and He answered. And He teaches further in verse 6-9 through nine about this fig tree and the Lord of this fig tree and a little bit of long-suffering. Notice those verses. And He spake this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why covereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. So the, 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 the owner here, the Lord so it's had three years. It's wasting ground. And we could dig that up, put something else. It would use my soil better than that. The worker says to the Lord, give me one more year. I'll work the ground around it. I'll fertilize it. And let's see if it won't bear fruit. What is Jesus saying? Well, this is just another way of Jesus saying, repent or perish. He expects our lives to be fruitful. He is patient with us, but He will not always be patient. You don't have forever to repent. But he has given you, well, today, you have this one more chance. And question about humanity. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Jesus' answer is repentance. Secondly, we see Jesus' teaching on Sabbath in verses 10 through 17. Now, we'll read from verse 10 through 13 about a lady who had been sick for 18 years. It seems that she has some sort of spinal problem. She's not able to stand up straight. And Jesus heals her. Let's read this account. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, Thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now there's a unique few things here in this here miracle of the healing. Often we find people seeking out Jesus. Here he seeks her out. That's encouraging. Sometimes he'll just come find you, right? But, but I do want to point out where she is. She's, she's at the synagogue on Sabbath. She's with God's people where they gather at that time. So in a way, she is sort of seeking out Jesus, isn't he? In a way, she's sort of expressing her faith. I don't like that I'm bent over. I don't like that I've had this spinal disease for 18 years. But here I am. I'm still at the synagogue on the Sabbath. And boy, what a great day it was for her. Jesus comes over, lays hands on her. She stands up straight and her infirmity is gone. Praise the Lord. Except if you're a rabbi. Verse 14, and the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. (laughs) I'd like to picture that in our situation here this morning. I've worked hard on my sermon this week. I've got pages of notes. Who is this guy come in here and help somebody while I'm trying to preach the message? You sit down and you wait your turn. He's upset with Jesus for helping this lady. It's an odd thing, isn't it? He says, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, there are six days in which men ought to work and them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Look, you diseased, you demon possessed, you crippled, you deaf, you blind. You have six other (laughs) days to get healed. Don't you dare do it on the Sabbath day. I give you my mantra from... As of late, again, this morning in regards to that, I hate legalism. I absolutely hate legalism. That's all this is. What does it matter? What difference did it make in the grand scheme of things that this woman who was sick had been miraculously healed on this particular day at this particular time? Well, I tell you this, it mattered much to this lady. You think she cared what day of the week it was? You think she minded that it went against the typical order of service in their gathering? If they'd had a projector, somebody could have raised their hand and said, that wasn't in one of the slides. (laughs) Next time you're going to heal somebody, we expect to have a slide up to let us know this is going to happen. Verse 15, the Lord answered and said, thou hypocrite, can you give Jesus an amen there? Amen, brother. Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to wandering? Ought not this woman being the daughter of Abraham whom Satan hath bound? Lo, these 18 years be loose from this bond on the Sabbath day? I want to be clear, we're all in agreement with verse 16. Shouldn't this woman who Satan has bound for 18 years be loose from her bond? Amen. Amen. Verse 17, when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So, this ruler of the synagogue rebukes Jesus. Jesus error. points out his error. And Jesus, in this, uses a time to teach what the Sabbath is for. You see, organized religion had made the Sabbath for all things Sabbathy, order of service. Standing and sitting. I'm going to make it our, our terms now. I don't know what they did then. I'm not Jewish. Standing and sitting. Singing off the wall. Quoting doctrine back and forth to one another. Responsively reading. Dressing a certain way. Acting a certain way. You realize you're not supposed to cuss on Sundays, right? What does it mean? It's all right the rest of the week? Is this the idea? Lucky you laughed a little too hard there. I'm worried about you, brother. See, my legalistic self's already judging. Poor brother Lucky. What an odd thing. What was the Sabbath for? Was it for the ritual? Was it for the organization of religion? It's not what Jesus said. In fact, I, I think if we could put these words in his mouth, essentially what Jesus is saying here, the Sabbath's for Mercy. When questioned, he reminds that people are to be above programs. You know, I, I, love, I love it when there are mistakes in our ritual. Like Sometimes the person back there didn't get the slides just right. Jackie did good, perfect this morning. Pray for Brother Jimmy. He's in the hospital this morning. He had some issues with his heart. He's hoping to go home today, but you'd be praying for him. I appreciate it. Brother Jimmy's faithful to be back there. Push these buttons for us. Sometimes that doesn't go right. Sometimes, Mr. Wiggins never hits a foul note on the piano, but Tom, sometimes he does on the bass, right? And of course, I never mess up with the sermons, but other preachers, maybe they mess up too. But I tell you, I kind of like the mistakes. I kind of like the abnormalities to our worship because it sort of wakes us all up and reminds us what we're actually here to be doing. I didn't mean it in the... In the the, the songs we sang this morning, but did you notice one word was in every single song? Well, yes, salvation was in every single word, too. There was a different word I was thinking about glory. Glory was in every single one. And I thought about that, and I thought, we've kind of misplaced glory in our day. What is glory for? Well, it's for heroes, it's for ball teams, it's for our own selves at times. We glory in lots of things. But then we come to church on Sundays, and what are we supposed to be doing? It was the chief end of man to glorify God. Glory to his name. I'm from Georgia. It's very popular there, especially in the fall. This sing, glory, glory to old Georgia. Yay. We don't get that pumped about Jesus. In fact, somebody getting a little too excited about Jesus, we might need a slide for that too. Next time, one of you are going to shout. Maybe we, We'll put a slide in next Sunday. At this moment, anybody who would like to shout to the Lord, you can give your shout to the Lord. But after that slide plays, let's, let's just do no more of this. And some of you don't understand sarcasm. I'm being sarcastic. I'm joking around, okay? <laughs> amen. Right. When should you be able to shout amen, Brother Lucky? Yeah, and that should be all the time, right? I mean, when should we ever stop glorifying the Lord? Never. Never. Jesus has to remind them of this here. This guy really gets up with indignation and rebukes Jesus. Now, we would say, how dare he rebuke Jesus? Well, he obviously doesn't hold Jesus in the same esteem that we do. So I'm going to cut him a break there. I'm not even going to make that point. Of course he shouldn't be rebuking Jesus. But to rebuke the miracle? She was crooked, now she's straight. She couldn't stand up, and now she can. She was bound by Satan, and now she is not anymore. Where's the rebuke? Where's the indignation? We've, we've, we've fallen into a trap, church. We've put our programs above people. Because it makes us feel good. If we can do this and that and the other, and we've got that marked off, we can go throughout our week, and we say, well, Lord, we did it. But who has it helped? Who has it cared for? Who has been healed? Who has been saved? Has God been glorified? Dedication to God leads to meeting human needs. While dedication to religion protects the tradition even at the cost of human life. That's what we find here in this passage. I think we're guilty here. I think often we're so committed to our religion, we're so committed to our traditions, we're so committed to our programs that we, like these in verse number 15, have made exceptions for our own need to break the the so-called Sabbath. Now, be clear where we are on the Sabbath. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says the Sabbath has passed. We don't don't honor or worship a Sabbath anymore anymore we honor and worship a resurrected Lord. Now, the early church did this on the first day of the week. We do it now on the first day of the week. I don't think we're bound to do that on the first day of the week. Some people have to work on the first day of the week. Brother Rick used to be at Lowe's. He had to work on Sundays. He came in and worshiped on Wednesdays. Brought his tithes. Amen, Brother Rick. (laughs) We put all this ahead of God. These people here had made exceptions to break the Sabbath. Jesus said to them in verse 15, you're hypocrites. Every one of you on the Sabbath, you take care of your animals. Why do you do this? Well, because it's merciful. We shouldn't, you know, early American farmers would tell you, church started at 11 in the morning, not so people could sleep late. (laughs) That's what we do it for now. It's because they had to milk cows. It was not a mercy on this animal to milk to not milk that cow. It's gorged and waiting when you get home, so you could go to church. So they waited and had church later, so that the farmers could do their chores. Now we transition to cities, and things have changed, and reasons for things to change. But all along the way, we've been making exceptions for our own breaking of our own rules. Now I would say our rules are not our traditions are not the reason we do things. Our rules would be scripture. Why is it that we don't just hold to scripture? Well, often we don't just hold to scripture and we do it out of the sake of tradition, religious ritual, programming. You ever stop to think in the church, why do we do what we do? Like, I mean, why are, why are you sitting in rows of chairs this morning? Why are there rows of chairs with an aisle up the middle? I'm going to give you a guess. I don't know. I haven't studied this in church history. But it's so much easier to have a wedding when there's a middle aisle because the bride wants to be seen, so she wants to walk down the middle aisle. You ever been in a church that doesn't have a middle aisle? makes for a very odd wedding. And people get creative with it. Some of these churches, you know, they kind of have the hook shape here. And they'll have people come in over here and people come in here and they get up up there. But it doesn't make for good weddings. A real traditionalist, a real traditional church will be sure that there's a center aisle. How wide you say it had to be, Brother Scotty? Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) There are rules on such things. (laughs) Why do we have stained glass? You know why we have hymnals. Because it's biblical. Now the reason we have hymnals is because for some reason we got to where we only sang these songs once a week and then we only sang some of those songs once a year, so we couldn't remember them. So we got to put them in a book so we knew the words so we could sing them. You understand that that's not how the church early on used hymn singing. They sang the psalms early on, and then later in church history they begin to sing doctrine. Why did they want to sing doctrine? They said if we put it in song form, it'll stick in people's brains and they'll sing it all week long because music does that to humans and they'll remember the doctrine. We've kind of... We're we're moving our mule on the Sabbath there, aren't we? But then we've got our own tradition now. We should have hymnals. That's the way. These words on the screen, I don't like it. I like it in a hymnal. It's better. But in reality, that's actually new. This hymnal thing is newer than what should have been, which should just be, we have these things in our brains and we teach it. Vacation Bible School this year was a good illustration of this. We used the community center here. There was no technology. There was no media. So there was no projector. There was no amplification. There was no CD player. You couldn't play an MP3. Well, what did we do? How in the world did we ever have music? Well, I got up there like a goofball and I clapped my hands to the rhythm. And I sang children's song to children. And how did I remember these children's songs to children? Because honestly, while full and rich of theology and doctrine, they weren't written in such theological terms that you couldn't understand them and knew what they said, so they stayed in your brain. And I'm just picking on that particular thing, but we could pick on a lot of things. Jesus said to them here, you loose your ox from the stall. On Sabbath, and you lead Him away for watering. What other exceptions have we made for our need to break the Sabbath? Now, let's be clear. Is it wrong to sit in pews? Is it wrong to have stained glass windows? Is it wrong to sing from a hymnal or from a screen? No. What's wrong is when we do all of these things and God gets no glory. And what's especially wrong is when somebody tries to give God glory and in the midst of us doing these things, we say, hang on. You're messing up the order of things we've got planned. You need to wait your turn. There's six other days for this. This is good teaching Jesus gives on the Sabbath. Are we willing to bend a little to help somebody? I think we've got to be careful to not let the ministry of people get outside of our reach. The church as a whole has predominantly gotten into the ministry of programs. The idea is, well, if we have the programs, it'll it'll draw and help the people. I don't see it working. There's a lot of people involved in a whole lot of programs who seem to have more problems than they've ever had before. So Jesus' question, and the answer is about repentance. Repent or perish. Perish. He answers about the Sabbath. Are you helping people or are you just keeping to a ritual that helps yourself? Next, he's questioned about the kingdom. Verse number 18. Verse 18 through 21, he, he begins to teach about what I'll call kingdom growth. Then said he, unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again, he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. So in the mind of Jesus' audience, a grain of mustard seed was one of the smallest imaginable things of their day. So he's teaching them, and he needs to bring to mind something that is just tiny. Be like if I said to you an atom, a cell—you know these microscopic things. Well, for them that wasn't knowledge yet. So he says a grain of mustard seed. And he goes on to say then, in the same way, uh, just a small amount of yeast would be effective. So the this small grain of mustard seed, though it's the tiniest imaginable thing in your life, given the the tree that it would produce, and then the birds that would help to continue to spread this growth would just would just grow at an unimaginable rate. And then yeast. It only takes a little bit of yeast to make the dough rise. And he talks about three measures of that here. This is going to be a lot. This is not going to be just enough to feed your family. This is going to be enough to feed an army. So what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God starts small, but out of small beginnings comes exceedingly great growth. Growth that produces strong and abiding fruit. Now, you need to put this parallel with what we just learned about the Sabbath. When we talk about growth. It's talking about growth in helping people, not growth in doing more programming and rituals. That's what kingdom growth is. Aren't you glad that sort of kingdom growth reached you? Changed your life? Who are you reaching with this same kind of kingdom growth? Whose life are you changing? See, in the mustard seed illustration, if the birds stop taking them up and moving them around, there'll be no more new growth. Often, though, in the kingdom, our role seems small. Our role seems of little use. In fact, in like just a modern Church situation, we would all sit and say, well, the preacher, he has the role. He's the one preaching the word. Now, that's important. My job is not to the world. My job is to you. Your job is to the world. Who who are you going and spreading these seeds of the word with? Jesus gives examples of two very small things here but very small things that produce mighty things. And He just taught us what a mighty thing is. Here was a woman, 18 years bound, now miraculously freed and released. Who is to be doing such things in the the world in which we live? You are. You're to be helping people in this way. Never despair about your kingdom efforts. Do what you are called to do. Do what you are led to do. And then you trust God for the increase. I want to say here even if you get through life and you've only ever led one person to Christ, that could be the very thing that's big. But I think I want I'm going to say instead, how many of you have actually ever led another person to Christ? And our theological position there would be not just getting them to make a statement of faith, but discipling them, teaching them the word, teaching them how to be in a relationship with Jesus. Then let's go back to chapter 12 from last week. If most of us have never even done that, are we faithful kingdom servants or unfaithful kingdom servants? And it's a funny thing. This whole like, Just being part of the kingdom is sort of a given as you read through the Gospels and Acts. The ones who are going to be a part of the kingdom kind of are. You don't see a whole lot of evangelistic tactics. This is how you get them to get saved. What do you actually see? You see a lot of supernatural happenings. They're curious about the kingdom. They want to be having their sins forgiven. And what else happens in their life? Money comes when they need it. Food comes when they need it. Healing comes when they need it. Devils are run off when they need it. What have we adopted at the modern church, though? Instead of being a ministry to people, we're a ministry of programs. And as long as they're willing to come and take part in our programs, we'll give them the nod. And all the while, we'll badmouth the Catholic church who are doing the exact same thing in a different way as if we're doing it better. Where's the Holy Spirit in all of this? Where's the word in all of this? It's a unique thing when you think about. You can make a, an illustration with the, the mustard seed, but you can make a better one with the yeast. Can you really stop yeast from making dough rise? When I mean, you were supposed to be baking unleavened bread, and you accidentally put a tad of yeast in there, can you pinch that out real quick? Is that going to work? It's unique. I I don't bake a lot, but some of you ladies help me out here. You can't really do that, right? You can't stop yeast from making dough rise. It's going to be nearly impossible. So it is with the kingdom. Don't doubt your kingdom importance, but at the same time, don't be so worried over like Sabbath that your kingdom useless. If Jesus had fallen under the authority of this temple ruler and held to what he had done there, he'd have been no help to this lady. You need to wait till Thursday to come heal her. All right, lady, can you come back on Thursday? I think I'm trusting that healer. Find me somebody else. Next, Jesus teaches about the straight gate into the kingdom. Verse 22. And he went through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then you shall begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Now this type of thing is not popular, but this type of thing is biblical truth. Jesus says here, strive to enter the straight gate. There will be many seeking to enter and unable. This is not Jesus' command to to try to work and earn grace. That's not the teaching you should take from this. This is his instruction about the struggle that the straight and narrow will face in a world mostly comfortable with broad and open. Sproul says, this does not mean that salvation is by works. It is a strong way of saying that people must be in earnest about salvation because the opportunity to receive it will not last indefinitely. MacArthur says this signifies a great struggle against conflict. Christ was not suggesting that anyone could merit heaven by striving for it, no matter how rigorously they labored. Sinners would never save themselves. Salvation is solely by grace, not by works. But entering the narrow gate is nonetheless difficult because of its cost in terms of human pride, because of the sinner's natural love for sin, and because of the world's and Satan's opposition to the truth. So the the route to the kingdom is through the straight gate. Now, there's also some teaching here for the Jews. The Jews of Jesus' day considered that all Israel would be in the kingdom. This one questioning in verse 23, who says unto Jesus, Lord, are there few to be saved? Well, that's a legitimate question. If you're a Jew who's been taught that outside of a few who would be ostracized from our group and we would not consider them true Israel anymore, All of Israel would be saved. Well, that's not few. That's a lot. So he must be catching on to Jesus' teaching here and beginning to question Jesus' teaching up against what he's been taught his whole life. What is he gleaning from this? He's gleaning that entering God's kingdom requires more than your lineage. Oh, but I'm a son of Abraham. But he's saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. more so for a Jew than that would be verse 29 and 30 as we find Gentiles worked into the lineage. Now You and I have the full account of Scripture and we understand that we've been grafted in, right? But, but look at how Jesus says this in verse 29. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Okay, around here, how do we say that? Where are they coming from? Everywhere. And shall sit down in the kingdom of God and behold... There are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. Sunday school will teach us that this is a good character trait. And we proof text, Luke chapter number 13, verse number 30. If you make yourself last, you'll be first, and these are good manners. That's not what, that's not the doctrine here. Who do the Jews consider last? The Gentiles. So this is Jesus saying to a Jewish audience here. You guys think you're first, but you're going to be last. Which we've seen that play out in human history. And then he said, and those that you all consider last, they're actually going to be the first. And it's the Gentiles who predominantly make up the church. (laughs) Unique things in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom here. There are a couple other things to note in these verses. Verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door... You begin to stand without and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence ye are. God's not always going to strive with man. There's a time limit to the offer of salvation. And Jesus' instruction is repent or perish. He takes that further in verse 26 and 27. Now remember, he's just talked about in verse 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate. There are many seekers who are not going to enter in But those of you who enter the straight gate are in. Now he elaborates on who these seekers are in verse 26 and 27. He says, then you shall begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. What is this point here? Socially associating with Jesus is not enough. Oh, I know him. You could ask me, you know, do you know the governor? Oh, yeah, shook his hand. I know him. He looked me right in the eyes and said hello. Now, I don't know Bill Lee, the governor of Tennessee. I'm just making this up. Some of you are getting really impressed with me. But at some point in my life, I'm sure I've shook the hand of some governor or some politician, somebody important. Trust me. Probably the most important person ever. I've shook their hand. I don't know them. Jesus says, many of you, 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 I've come through your towns. Maybe you've served me some food. I've taught in the streets, around your houses, in your places of business. You're going to try to say, well, I know you. But he said, you've not come in through the straight gate. On the narrow path. You've socially associated with Jesus. But he's not your master. You're still your master. Well, that's heavily convicting to the current church. We all are this morning socially associating with Jesus. We've picked out a place of stuff quite so crazy that we feel like we're in a cult, but it's just crazy enough that we feel like there's something going on real here. You're looking at me weird. Is that not how you picked the church? You want it just crazy enough but not off the range, right? Oh, if only we were snake handlers right now. Could run some of you out of here. We need the leaders of that gathering to tell us we're okay. Because if they think we're okay, then we must be okay. we have not taken the time to read the Scriptures on our own, to learn what they say, to lead our homes in what they say. We just say, well, that's what we go down to the church for. I go to the doctor when I'm sick. I go to the grocery store when I'm hungry. I go to the bank when I need money. I go to the church when I need to be made sure that I'm alright. Jesus says, You'll say, we've eaten and we've drunk in your presence. You're talking on our streets. But I'll tell you, I don't know you. He said, I'll tell you, that's all works of iniquity. God would not always strive with man. Social association with Jesus is not enough. And then verse 28, final thought to make from this section is that the alternative to repentance is actually very grievous and final. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People only weep and gnash their teeth when there's a finality. When the call is made that someone you love has died, you weep and gnash your teeth. That's the end. There's nothing you can do about it. It's final. Jesus goes further there to say, when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourself are thrust out. There will be a division. The church has gotten just worldly enough, and the world has gotten just churchy enough that the division's real hard to see right now. One of the things that I appreciated most from the government mandates of COVID was that it kind of became easier to see the church. The worldly in the church separated from the church, the churchy in the world separated from the church, and you were just left with the church. Prior to that, churches across the nation were kind of gorged. We'd gotten good at getting people to fill the seats, churchgoers who were not Christians. Jesus says, "There's There's another time coming. You better repent or you will perish. Then finally, we see Jesus' lament. Verse 31 through 35. In response to a warning from the Pharisees, Jesus said that he had to reach Jerusalem because he's appointed to die there. And, and, and read the warning with me in verse 31. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. Now there's debate on if that was true or if these guys were just trying to get him to leave. That happened to Nehemiah. We studied that last Sunday night. You've been preaching Nehemiah on Sunday night, so I did too. Figured might as well. They told Nehemiah, they're they're going to try to come kill you. You better hide out. And that wasn't even true. They were were tricking him to try to get him to slow down the work. Probably that's what's happening here. Could be that these were Pharisees who cared about Jesus and didn't want him to get killed. Jesus' response is wonderful. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox. (laughs) Now we have some fox people in our church here, the fox family. I'm going to say some things about foxes here, and I don't mean this toward these people. I like these people. These are nice folks. But when Jesus said, go tell that fox, that's not what he means. It doesn't mean Brother Steve. He means chicken thief. He means scoundrel. Varmint. That which is to be hunted. He says, You go tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So his message is I I, I will be finished with my task soon enough, but until then I'm not going to be hindered by you. This was an announcement. Of God the Father's sovereignty and Herod the ruler's lack thereof. Oh man, I wished modern Christians in the church would operate like this. But we're just the opposite. The government said. It's got to be the word first. I mean, I wear a seatbelt, I didn't until the government said. Don't get me wrong. But in reality, what should come first? Who is Lord? Probably this is more accurate. It's not that we've said Caesar is Lord, meaning government. It's that we're comfortable with chances, Lord, or your name in the blank there. I am Lord, and I blame it on government because I feel like that will appease God. It's not going to. Jesus laments here then. Because he says, my mission ends in Jerusalem. What does he say usually happens in Jerusalem? That's usually where they kill the prophets. Wait a minute. That That should not be, right? What's in Jerusalem? The temple. Whose temple? God's temple. The one. The Mecca. The place. That temple. It's there. The prophet should be gloried, paraded. Boy, Jesus really sticks it to him here and says, that's where I'm going to go. That's usually where prophets are killed and that's probably what's going to happen to me. Not probably. It was definitely for Jesus he knew that. Verse 34 in his lament, Jesus makes another nice comparison, contrast. If Herod is a fox, then Jesus says, well, then I'll be a hen." Verse 34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings and ye would not. He said, I would have gathered you like a mother hen, but you refused me. And then in verse 35, he continues grieving for them. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, And verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time when you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Sadly, once Jerusalem finally comes around, that he is the one to come in the name of the Lord, it will be too late. He is here in his first advent. That will be at his second. And at that time, it will be too late. As I conclude today, I want to read you this. A modern scholar wrote this about Luke chapter number 13. And I, and I thought of writing my own version of this, but I said he, he just did a good job. I'll try to keep you all awake during this rather long. But I think it does a good job of kind of like waking us up to where we are as the modern church. He says, you see them every Sunday. Dressed in Sunday best. They parade into the church. Dutifully, they sit in Bible study and then climb the stairs for worship. They take hymn books or sing the words projected on the wall. They put their bit in the offering plate. They shake hands with acquaintance and tell the preacher he did another good job. They, they return home, take off their church clothes, and forget God for another week. Religion has become routine. Meeting God is nothing more than listening to teachers, singing hymns, praying the same old memorized prayer if asked to lead in public, making a small offering, waiting through one more sermon, yet somehow this gives assurance. The preacher will preach their funeral, tell how faithful they were to attend church, and promise the family that today they are with Jesus. What a parody on the Christ, who came warning the most dedicated of religious people That they were last in kingdom line. Probably not going to get in because they had too much religion and not enough relationship to God, too much going to church and not enough dedication to God and His mission. Jesus came to call people to repent. Are you one of those whom He calls? Are you in danger of being cut down without another chance to respond to Jesus? Are you so busy being religious that you fail to see the kingdom growing in your midst? Has the wide door of religion accommodated you all these years so that you see no reason to answer the call to the narrow one? Have you read and talked and sung and listened to people preach about Jesus for years without meeting Him personally as your Savior? Jesus went to Jerusalem to die for you. Are you dedicated enough to live for Him? I want us to bow. Luke 13 is awfully convicting. As your week-to-week preacher, I would like to preach fun stuff to you, stuff that would give you zeal, not like this. But as I studied through Luke 13, I was so convicted myself of being so enamored with the ritual and the routine of religion that I often forget about God. I get so busy reading my Bible because I'm supposed to be reading my Bible that I forget that this is God talking to me. These are His words. I get so busy trying to determine my own thoughts that I forget that the Holy Spirit of God lives in me and and it's His thoughts that I need to be hearing. I get so busy with the plans and the funding for the routines that I forget that it's the people that we're supposed to be helping You can go week in, week out. Routine and program one after another. Produce the budgets, have the meetings. And never really truly interact with another person. Sadly. This is not what God has saved us to do. This is not what God has called us to do. I don't know where you find yourself in this story this morning. Maybe you just need to repent or perish. And if that's where you are, I would remind you, they're unrighteous. We're all sinners. The only difference between you and me or you and anybody else in here is whether they've repented, given their life to the Lord. But maybe you're here this morning and you've repented. It's putting way too much cloud in whatever we would call nowadays the Sabbath. Maybe you're living for today and yourself and not for the kingdom. Maybe your mind is not even on eternity. I don't know how you need to respond to the word. I know how God had me respond to this word. But I would encourage each of us to respond this morning in some way. I think the easiest thing I can tell you to do is to get right with God. But I hope you'll put some details to that. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it encourages us when we're grieving. It brings us up when we're down. But Lord, we're also thankful that if we won't skip hard passages like this, that even the biblical church, you will convict and correct at times. Father, help us to take what you've shown us from this passage, change our lives, change our homes, change our church, change our community to suit you. This we pray in Jesus' name.